Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Uh, It's crazy to me, but this week I'm actually releasing the 100th episode of the Herd Quitter Podcast, and it has been a blast. I've been able to talk to some pretty awesome and inspiring people. And for this milestone episode, I've got a very special guest, and I'm excited and grateful for the opportunity to be joined today by Alan Savory. Alan, uh, I have to say, as I was kind of preparing for this podcast, I was thinking back, uh, you know, I were kind of reflecting on a lot of the things that uh, I do for a living. Um, I farm here with my family. Uh, we we practice a lot of the things that you've taught and, and teach. And, and I also work for the Sustainable Farming Association of Minnesota, working with farmers and ranchers across Minnesota, implementing, you know, grazing and soil health practices. And, and again, a lot of the things that we teach stem back to a lot of the work that you pioneered and and I also, my wife and I market uh, meat to customers in the Twin Cities through our brand, Grassfed Cattle Company, and it's not unusual at all to get uh, debates or discussions and conversations about how cattle are, you know, destroying the planet and kind of the the problem. And and so as I was thinking about that and stuff too, you know, a lot of the the debate and the discussion that I'm feeling comfortable now having stems from the research that you've done and the work that you've done. And so it's it's really just humbling to have you on this podcast and to be able to talk to you knowing how much of what I do comes from the work that you pioneered. So I, I really just want to say thank you so much and welcome to the Herd Quitter podcast. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm I'm excited. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be fun. I, I I'm looking forward to it. But I guess what I'd like to start with is really kind of gathering context as far as to, you know your history and how you got into doing the work that you're doing. And so I'm not sure if you're you know able to maybe go back and talk about the beginning and how did you get into this kind of this work of you know ultimately what became what you're known for. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief because that's all very fresh in my mind now because I've spent the last six months writing my memoir of the early years from 1935 uh, till 1980 when I got exiled. So it's very fresh in my mind. And yes, how I got into it is basically leaving university as a 20-year-old young scientist, terribly keen to get on and save the wildlife of Africa. By the time I was 21, I was in charge of a very large area of what was northern Rhodesia, now Zambia, and in fact about 80% of the country's future national parks and game reserves. So it was a very young age to be in that position. And during that, uh, Sir Frank Fraser Darling visited uh, looking at wildlife in Africa, and I had the opportunity to spend six weeks cheek by jowl in canoes and Land Rovers, camped night after night with the world's top eminent ecologist knighted for his work. Mm-hmm. And no, in my life, I've never had the opportunity to spend six weeks treat by jowl one-on-one with the world's top authority. So there I was, but I was the officer in charge at 21. He was this terribly experienced uh, ecologist, and I was showing him the destruction that I was observing on wild areas of Africa that we were just creating game reserves and national parks, and they were already losing biodiversity 
and what we call desertifying later. We didn't call it that, but it was environmental degradation. And I was saying, what do we do about this? And he had no idea what to do. And that was a wakener to me. And at that point, I began dropping what I wanted to do in my career, which was just to be a biologist and study elephants and that I loved. And I dropped that and began saying, no, I've got to focus on this. Why is our management as professional people leading to environmental destruction, even in future national parks? And nobody is still even asking that question 60 years later. I'm curious, even at that time, now it seems like when I go to parks, they are almost entirely devoid of life, it seems like, and largely destruction. A lot of the destruction has happened at this time when you were starting. How far into professional management, I guess, would you say that this was? Were, were these just in the beginning stages of degradation or were you witnessing witnessing, you know, the beginning of it? Or I guess if well, uh, the, the beginning of it, um, but it, now it's far worse. I'm, where I live in uh, Zimbabwe half the year, I'm surrounded by some 30 national parks and every one of them is an example of biodiversity loss contributing to climate change. Some of them in Botswana and Zimbabwe uh, are, are shocking. Mm. And and yet, not even the World Wildlife Fund is curious about it. Mm. And that's wild. Um, so yeah, so it's got worse all yeah. my life. But, but what, what I've done is to, you know, through all these years, just keep focusing on finding solutions, not endlessly spinning our wheels in the mud discussing the problem. And that's what keeps going on in conferences. Whether you look at COP 25, 26, go to COP 100, they'll still just be discussing the issue over and over again. That's, I suppose that individual that was there with you, he almost had an excuse because at the time it was new, you know, it was in the early stages of, you know, degradation, whereas now, like you say, it's been 60 years and still nothing has changed. That's, oh, that's crazy. But I guess kind of getting back into your story then early when you started to realize this and there was nobody out there with an answer, how did you start to formulate? I guess, what did you start to do to maybe discover solutions? Well, the the solution to it, we finally found in 1983 mm -hmm. when I was here as an exile and the American government department, uh, soil conservation department at the time, engaged me over two years to put 2,000 scientists through training in the work I was developing. And that period of two years of training 2,000 professors, land managers, <laughs> World Bank economists, uh, people from every main government agency managing land, and I didn't want to be wrong again as I'd been in the case of the elephant culling that I talk about in the TED Talk, we couldn't afford to be wrong again. So every one of those training sessions of 30 uh, people at a time, professional people, uh, we had an hour session at the beginning of every day saying, science is logical, question every damn thing we're doing. And every day we didn't move forward until everybody had questioned and challenged the logic or the science and everything we did. Mm -hmm. And so it was a tremendously uh i don't know other scientists ever had that opportunity in the world mm -hmm. and that was when we finally broke through and understood 
And as is published in my textbook, those groups of people, not, not me, they concluded using the holistic framework that we developed to deal with this problem, they stated we now recognize that unsound resource management is universal in the United States. I've worked in India, Pakistan, African countries, all over the world. It's uh, everywhere. Unsound resource management is universal. Mm. Now, when that was said, none of us knew about wicked problems in complex organizations, and that that's the main thing we manage at scale through. So we didn't know about the research on wicked problems and that what would happen as a consequence, we were in talk stage about training 18,000 Forest Service people, and suddenly doors were shut, everything was changed, and all further training of government people was banned. Why? Well, this is this. Let, let's let's get to it. Yeah. Science is logical. Okay, we accept mm -hmm. that. Yes, I do. So, all, almost or well, many scientists have been in denial about climate change. Now, what is climate change? All right, it's just rapid change of the climate due to human intervention in the environment. Mm. Okay, so global biodiversity loss is where it starts. And that in two thirds of the world leads to desertification ultimately. In the oceans and the humid areas of the world, it doesn't, because you cannot expose bare soil, it covers up. So we've had years of denial by some scientists that they are causing climate change, which really is biodiversity loss, uh, desertification, megafires, and climate change now feeding on each other in one of nature's feedback loops, and it's spiraling out of control. So we've had scientists who denied that, that humans were causing it. But I think we can say within the last two or three years, every sane scientist has now acknowledged that humans are causing climate change. Now, if science is logical, that means cattle aren't, coal isn't, oil isn't, fossil fuels aren't causing it. Management is causing it. It is how humans at scale and on the farm and in the business and in the family manage their lives their environment and the economy, how they manage these things. That is what is causing the problem. Now, that's beyond any scientific doubt. Now, the scientists who have acknowledged that unwittingly are continuing to not talk about management. So if you went to, for example, COP26, the last COP meeting, the entire discussion wasn't about management. It was about things we produce. So if management is the cause of the problem, let's keep with science and keep with simple logic that you will understand, every listener will understand. If management is causing the problem, then what do we manage? Now, people believe that we manage millions of things. No, we do not. We produce millions of things. You are producing this podcast. Your farmers you work with produce food. Other farmers in other ways produce food. We produce cell phones. We produce cars. We produce music. We produce orchestras. We produce cities, roads, bombs, 
weapons, space exploration vehicles, everything that makes civilization possible is produced, not managed. Mm. That's mm. logic, all right? So then what do we manage? And we only manage three things. Now, the world believes that we manage millions of things and that there's many ways you can manage. You can manage dictatorially, democratically, scientifically, whatever. Mm. No, there are whole libraries, there are whole universities that teach management. And they don't teach that we only manage three things. We manage our lives. We do not produce those. Okay? Everything we produce, let me go back to that for a moment, everything we produce stops if we stop producing it, even food. Nothing you produce keeps going if you stop producing it. Nothing we produce is complex. They're very complicated. I can't even understand a computer, a cell phone. I'm illiterate to these things, all right? But they are not self-renewing. They're not self-organizing which is what complexity means, as against complicated, all right? So when we look at what we manage, we manage humans, our families. You manage your family, I do, we all do. And then we manage our farm or our business, and we manage within our community, all right? We don't produce that, we manage it. Now, to manage your family or your farm or any business or anything, Okay, you have to manage the economy because if you can't finance your farm, you can't keep going. If you can't finance your family, fund it, you, you can't keep going. All right, so you manage your family or you manage humans, you manage the economy in which you grow up. And this used to be centuries and centuries ago, just barter. And now it's become a complicated economy, but you manage the economy. Now, only when you're managing humans and the economy, now do you manage nature. And nature, that means the environment. And everything you produce comes from the environment. And everything you throw out at waste goes back to the environment. Everything is cycling in the environment. So those are the three things. We do not produce them. They do not stop if you Stop. If millions of people die, as happens in wars and so on, the nation carries on, the country carries on, everything carries on, but in changed form. If thousands of species become extinct, nature carries on, but in changed form. They don't stop. It just changes the form because it's self-organizing. Now, if economies collapse completely, as I've experienced in, in Zimbabwe with the highest inflation ever in the history of the world, and the complete collapse of our economy, nothing stopped. We just carried on with the black market, which was more honesty, more integrity than the mainstream economy. And they kept the country going. All right, so economies, even if everything collapses, people keep going, even if they fall back to just bartering. It never stops. Now, nature is the same. It, it just keeps going, but in damaged or changed form. Now, every species, every species, and we are a species, is dependent on its habitat. And humans are destroying human habitat. And that's what I first picked up in national parks. They were like the Welsh miners carrying canaries into the mine. And if the canary fell off the perch, it was a bloody good time to get out of the mine immediately. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, the canaries have been falling off the perch in national parks in America all over, and we've just been ignoring it all my life. Okay, so so those are the three things we manage. And um, so if you go to, let's say, COP, because COP27 <laughs> is coming up, and I'm just going to pick that because that's the ultimate biodiversity loss, you know, desertification fire, uh, climate change. If you go to the last COP, not a single person except myself talked about management. What What are they talking about? They're talking about uh, uh, production. I was asked to talk about regenerative agriculture. I said, I won't do that. All I'll do is start conflict. <laughs> because if I talk about regenerative agriculture, millions of other people will talk about mainstream chemical technology agriculture. Whereas, so if you went to COP and you go to COP27, which is coming up, you will find people talking about how to produce energy. You will find people talking about how to produce food. And if we look at the agricultural part of it, which we're doing at the moment, when you look at that, you'll find that the bulk of the people, supported by billionaires, celebrities, everything will be in the anti-meat, anti-blah-blah-blah movement, and they will be promoting production of food based on technology and chemistry. And you'll find a minority, a very small minority, tiny, who will be promoting agriculture, producing food by farmers based on biological science. They happen to be right, but they're losing the war because the whole world is going the other way because that's where the money, the celebrities, the universities, the professors, everybody is talking about production. And I can promise you right now, you won't find anybody talking about management. So there's no hope of anything for the next hundred COP conferences until we start talking about the cause of the problem. And now again, that comes down to childishly simple logic, science, that if you don't address the cause of a problem, you have no hope of addressing the problem. Hmm. So all I'm doing is applying science and common sense. And for over 50 years, I've had condemnation, and the only evidence against me is proof by authority. Professors in range science at Texas A&M University or in Oxford say I'm wrong. That's not science. That's proof by authority. That's what was used against Galileo, Copernicus. Nothing has changed since then. And I guess the resistance, I'm, I'm wondering if... I, I don't fully understand why the resistance in agriculture specifically, it seems like maybe there's so many individual, I guess, managers that to somehow align all of the managers in some sort of a aligned goal would be nearly impossible. So I guess maybe that's some of the resistance, but on especially on national parks where the control is solely in the control of one, you know, the, the, the park national, uh, the DNR and different things and stuff. I mean, is that... What's the resistance to this change and shift on focus? Uh, it's absolutely understood. It's If you just read the science and the research, the system science, wicked problems of institutions. I said we, the first thing we manage is humans. Now you've got two scales at which you manage, manage. Again, let's just come down to science and common sense. You, you and I can manage at the family level. Everybody listening to us 
can manage at the family or the local farm level, all right? Beyond that level, you manage through institutions, organizations. You cannot manage a war as an individual. Armies do. You cannot manage a country as an individual. Governments do. You see what I'm saying? So you've got the human scale of management, and then you've got the large scale of management, which is always through institutions. Now, institutions are complex, self-organizing. And what we didn't know when we formed them, because we have to have them, and they're essential, and they're our most efficient way of doing something, what we didn't know was that they were complex. And that the moment we form an institution, it takes on a life of its own. It doesn't behave like a human being does. If a human being murders somebody or accidentally kills somebody, they face severe consequences. If a company, corporate board, CEO, accidentally or deliberately kills millions of people, they get a multi-million dollar award and leave. They don't behave like humans. Let's just take religion. I, I'm not a religious person, but I observe what goes on. And if I just take one religion, which uh, most of our listeners probably belong to, which is Christianity. Now, Christianity, we can manage at the family level, and every human uh, tries to do so. And the message of the founder was painfully simple, basically love and caring. And you and I can do that, our families can do that, and I do, and everybody does. Now, what happened thousands of years ago when we started to manage religion at scale. Now we managed it through institutions. Now what happened? We've got, I believe, something like 2,000 branches of Christianity. How many centuries have we been killing each other, maiming each other, torturing each other, going to war? Uh, and so the institution will go against its very purpose. The Catholic Church is millions of wonderful people who love and care. What about the church? If you want real job security in the world, greater than any worker or anything, just be a pedophile priest. It's going against the very purpose of the church, which is to protect the innocent, the children. And nobody's being bad. That is how institutions behave. It's a wicked problem. There's another one, a wicked problem that's well known, is you and every listener is capable of common sense as we're using in this talk. Institutions are almost incapable of common sense. So you could ask almost anybody in America, does it make sense for us to produce oil and coal, to grow grain, to produce fuel for vehicles? And every sane person will say, that's not sensible. How many thousands of highly educated, far more intelligent than I am. Scientists in America are doing that. How many are protesting? It's normal. Nobody's being bad. That's how institutions are. So they will go against their very purpose and never admit they're wrong. I mean, in the TED talk, I admitted how wrong we were. Okay? And that led to the government killing, killing 40,000 elephants. And it got worse, not better as all of us scientists believed it would get better. I'm the one scientist in the world that said, no, it got worse. Why couldn't all the other scientists 
acknowledge that. I was independent. I was not working for an institution. Every other scientist was working for an institution, and institutions will not admit to error. So, so, so we need to be aware of that, and we are. In the way we've developed a solution to this in 1983, we take awareness of that into account. Nobody's being bad. It's just how complexity works in institutions. So as we manage at scale through institutions, we need to be aware of that. Now, I guarantee you at COP26, 27 now, nobody in the world will be talking about that. And and I'm wondering if we'll see where, where the conversation goes. I think it would be really interesting to see how we can manage more at scale and talk you know about this at scale. But it seems like anyway, the thing that I guess is going to be maybe most relevant to the listeners is how we can manage the holes of, you know, like at the the family level, at the family level and the individual level that you kind of mentioned, because it seems as if that's where we have more control over it. And in an agricultural context, I guess you could say, uh, when we're referring to those three different pieces of holistic management, the people and the social aspect, the financial and the, the natural resource base, I guess the, what is the perspective, what, what, what is current management lacking in consideration and what, what are they not taking into consideration with this holistic management and what do you work to help people? To... Yeah, let's deal with that question first and then come back to your one you started to, sure. to yeah. ask that. that. That's more logical for people listening. Yeah. All right, so what is wrong in management? We're managing these three things and it's going radically wrong. Take COVID. We got a virus outbreak, COVID. All governments managed that, developed policy mm-hmm. to handle that. And I'm told that in the first four months, it did more economic damage globally than the Second World War did in four years. Now, how can a virus do that damage? It can't. What did the damage was the way that governments developed policy. That's what's causing climate change. That's what's causing desertification. That's what's causing the loss of biodiversity in national parks. That's what's causing almost every problem humans are facing. Okay, so what is wrong then in management? And that's what we broke through with, with those 2,000 scientists working with me and, and the incredible stuff we went through over two years. As I say, never been done before. And what we broke through was with two new discoveries, one I'd broken through with earlier, and we confirmed it, and then we broke through with another. Now, these two discoveries are so simple, you will understand them immediately. The first is that we had broken through in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia earlier, was that the whole world believes that we can address biodiversity loss, desertification, climate change, okay, by using technology and fire, because those are the only two tools humans have had for the last 10, over 10,000 years, 50,000 years. We've never had more than two tools, technology in some form from Stone Age on, and once we developed fire, we went into the copper, the bronze, the iron age, and developed everything in your room, the clothing you're wearing, everything people are wearing, listening to us, was made possible by fire. Nothing in the room I'm looking at was possible without fire. So the world scientists believe we can 
solve this problem with. And I did. And the Fulbright scholars working with me as I'm writing in the memoirs, all of us believed that. And what I discovered in the 1960s was that, oh my God, we're wrong. Only livestock can solve the major part of this problem. Only livestock. No technology even imaginable can stop oxidation of dying grass in sunlight. That was what was causing the biodiversity loss and climate change we were beginning to see. And for thousands of years, humans had observed that. And they used fire, but fire is rapid oxidation. So it's again a chemical breakdown of biological material instead of a biological breakdown. So we discovered that in the 1960s. And that was like throwing a pork chop in a synagogue. It unleashed 50 years of abuse of me by authorities. Now, when I pointed out that you could use cattle, hooves and mouths, dung and urine to trample vegetation and get it down on the ground so it decays if it's dead and to break capped soil surfaces, that was said to be, I was a charlatan, I was not a scientist. Now, at the same time, universities in America, Texas mainly, developed giant machines, the Texas Nixon imprinter, to do exactly that, to trample down vegetation with this giant machine, had things, devices on that broke the soil surface to try to get plants growing. And so using technology was scientifically sound. It wasn't. There was absolutely no scientific evidence whatsoever that that would replace biological decay. But that was scientifically sound and approved by academic authorities. I was a charlatan. Now, 60 years later, the whole world is beginning to talk about maybe we need to use livestock. Yeah. And we've wasted all this time just because of the academic egos. Yeah, and do you think it's, I wonder if it's even largely, like they recognized, it sounds like, some of the problem of this lack of diversity and 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 sort of stuff and, and rather than the the way they just chose to so solve it was through technology and i wonder if that's largely due to there that's where the money is that's something you can sell i mean i don't know you can't sell live livestock is advantageous for the individual farmer because it's it doesn't require an additional input and it can generate income independent of all these things so the solution isn't monetized um, I mean, is that part uh, of the issue? Or? No, no, no that, that comes in later. If mm. you've only got two tools, technology and fire, what would you have done? The hell with the money or anything else. What would you have done? You'd have used fire. And <laughs> Aborigines used fire and Native Americans used fire. And now we have people saying, oh, we need to go back and learn <laughs> how they used fire. Well, if you take Aborigines, which has been well studied in the pollen record of Australia, when humans got to there, the pollen record shows that the bulk of the vegetation was animal-maintained. And once humans arrived with only Stone Age tools and fire, and they began to manage the habitat through fire, they killed out 80% of the genera of large animals and converted Australia to a fire-dependent vegetation, as you see today, getting more and more megafires. They had no option. And, and so we are still there. We're at COP26. Everybody will be talking about how to produce food with technology. Yeah. So I guess at the farm level or the ranch level with people who are starting to realize that there's an issue with management and 
what what are the practical things that they can do on their land bases, I guess, that you, you talk about? I mean, because not just reintegrating livestock in today's system, like you, I think that in the TED Talk, you talk about how largely they were moved by it was their natural instincts to defend from predators and stuff that, you know, resulted in certain movements and certain animal behaviors. Largely, those things have been changed. And so reintegrating livestock alone is not going to solve the problem. It's <laughs> At this point, it requires some additional management. Is that, that correct? Well, let me deal with that and then go back to the point we were discussing. Sure. All right. When, when I discovered that we had no option but to learn to use livestock, I didn't know how to do it. Nobody in the world knew how. Mm -hmm. Every way that humans had ever run livestock, herding, mob grazing, rotational grazing, every way humans had run livestock had led to biodiversity loss in every area of the world. Mm -hmm. That had been well researched by people like Rosanne, etc. There was no need for me to repeat that. Uh, now, how were we to do it? We didn't know. So rather than reinvent the wheel, I said, I have no resources. It's just me, an independent scientist, right? How, without reinventing the wheel, can I solve this problem? And I said, well, why don't I look at professions and see which profession has spent the most centuries dealing with complexity as we knew it, or complicated as we thought of it at that time. Mm -hmm. So I looked at which professions had dealt with the most complicated, ever-changing situations. And no business ran on any business system. They all had processes of planning, okay? Because systems uh, always break down when you're managing complexity. You, that's why educational systems break down, financial systems break down. All right, so they understood that. Now... Then when I looked at those, they were too complicated for people to understand, for ordinary farmers, pastoralists, etc. And they weren't really dealing with as much of a complicated situation as we were with wildlife, crops, seasons, all these things. So then I looked at the military. And, you know, where centuries ago, the military fought with an organized system, you know, uh, infantry in the middle, cavalry on the right, artillery on the left, you know, whatever, they bashed away and they learned that was stupid. So what had armies done in Europe throughout centuries? And what they had done was to develop a very, very simple way of training officers to come up with the immediate best possible plan at any point in time in the heat of battle, in immediate battlefield conditions. I was an officer in the army, so I was learning that, and I thought, well, damn it, this makes sense. The army has solved this problem. I don't have to repeat the wheel. So I said, now, how do they do it? Well, they just don't try to. They break it down into tiny little segments that your mind can focus on, and the segments build on each other, and you come up with the best possible plan. And I said, well, fine. They've had to do that for battles that last for an hour, minutes, days, <laughs> weeks. But farmers and ranchers have to plan for a year, two years. They don't know what the seasons are going to be. They have wildlife, they have crops, they have all the breeding needs of these things to integrate. They have people, holidays, people taking leave. They have their staff to deal with. How can I deal with that? Armies never did. So that's when I thought, well, all I do is I put it on a chart, all right? And I did that, and the first two ranchers I was working with, immediately it worked. 
and we've never, ever had a single failure since the mid-1960s. We have had thousands of farmers and ranchers fail to do it, and grazing gurus arrive, and mob grazing, and short-duration grazing, and cell grazing, and wagon wheel grazing, and mimicry, and mimicry, and mimicry, and all dropping the planning process. The only reason it works, and we can't make it fail, is the planning process. So, so we discovered that in the 1960s. We did international trials. We ran advanced projects observed internationally. They were all highly successful, and they just resulted in official condemnation. Hmm. All right, so let's, let's get off that now, because we know how to do that. And any farmer on any size of land in any country in the world, running orchards, chickens, everything, permaculture, whatever, if they're running livestock, can use that simple planning process. It fits every situation, just like military planning fits every situation in any battle. It's exactly the same. So we don't know how to make that fail. We only know, don't know how to take farmers to the trough and make them drink mm. like a horse. Yeah. Right Now, let's go back to the second thing, because if all of the farmers listening to us do that, they're still going to be in trouble. Now, the reason is, I said there were two things wrong with management. We've only discovered one there at that point. That is that it's impossible to solve the world's climate change spiraling out of control, except at the desertification biodiversity loss level, and that has to involve livestock and holistic plant raising process, or better when someone develops it, mm-hmm. but not go backwards. Mm-hmm. Right now, what was the other thing that was wrong? All humans have always believed that there are dozens of ways of managing. As we said earlier, you can manage dictatorially, etc., etc., and that all humans make decisions, you know, in many, many different ways. No, in that intense period with the 2,000 scientists <laughs> hammering through everything every day and not letting anything go unnoticed, all right, what we discovered was that, oh, my God, all humans make decisions exactly the same way, and it's causing the problem. So I don't know you, Jared. I don't know the listeners, but I do know how you make every conscious decision in your life. Now, how the hell do I know that? Because you're human. Tell me if I'm wrong. Don't you make every conscious decision in your life to meet a need you have, to meet a desire you have, or to save uh, deal with a problem you're facing? Can you think of a single conscious decision in your life you didn't meet make to meet one of those three things yeah i suppose not off the top of my head yeah yeah no you can't because that's what humans do mm-hmm. all right now you cannot take what we're managing the complexity of humans human institutions economy and nature which cannot be divided you can't manage your economy without nature because the only economy that will sustain any nation the end of the day is derived from the photosynthetic process. In other words, agriculture. All right? So you can't divorce these three. Now, how can you take the complexity in your life, okay, the economy you're operating in and the nature you're operating with on your farm and reduce it to meeting your needs, your desires, or solving a problem? If you're doing that, as is almost every farmer in the world 
you are part of the problem. That is reductionist management, where you reduce the complexity to simple things like meeting our needs, our desires, or solving problems. There you have the cause of biodiversity loss, desertification, conflict, war. More than 20 civilizations have already failed, and now we're facing it globally. And it is that simple. So what we had to do and broke through with in 83 was we had to develop a new concept which wasn't in any branch of science, philosophy, or religion. What the hell do you do to guide your decisions if the reason for your decisions is never going to change? You're always going to be making needs, uh, meeting your needs, your desires, and your problems. So you'll never change that. So how can you avoid that, reducing the complexity and causing unintended consequences like the COVID policy did? How can you do that? And the answer is we had to develop a new concept of a holistic context for all management. And that is what guides the process. And if you take the individual farm, you take a community, you take a government policy or anything, I absolutely guarantee you, if you get the appropriate people, the right people at the table, who have to develop the context, the holistic context for all management, they will come to agreement on it because all humans are wanting the same thing essentially and once you have an agreement on that you have harmony so when you are managing holistically you find incredible harmony with people now if you go to cop for instance and you promote regenerative agriculture what are you promoting you're promoting an agricultural practice and you will produce conflict well, I, I'm wondering if you can go a little more in depth on what that holistic context is and how that changes a person's mindset when making decisions. All right. Well, let's do it with you. Okay. What What's the hole you're managing in your life? It's you and your wife? Yeah. Children? My, we have one son. Yeah. I farm with my father and, and uh, his family. I've got a couple brothers who aren't involved in the farm. Um, do your brothers have any veto power over any management decision? No. Okay. I would say no. So get get your family together, your father, all the people who have who make actual management decisions or who have veto power over them. They have to be at the table. And then just decide how you want your life to be. How do you want your life to be? You're managing your life. Mm-hmm. This is the most crucial part of your life when you're young, raising a family. You'll never have this time again. Now, how do you want your life to be? Based on your culture, your spiritual values, your religion, whatever it is for you. Mm-hmm. And don't say, oh, no, my church means more. It should be in there. Don't say, oh, my children mean more. They should be in there. Sure. There's no excuse for it. Okay, so decide how you want your life to be. Now, we can give you guidance on that because there's some rules. There must be no how to do it. Because this is the context for decisions. It's not sure. the reason or the decision. So yep. there must be no decision in there. Mm-hmm. Just how you want your life to be. Now, you're going to be dependent on other people. But your job, your training, selling, whatever. Every one of us is dependent on other people. What can mm-hmm. you make me loyal to you? What can you do? Nothing. You can't push me with a piece of string. 
Mm -hmm. If you want people to support you, buy from you, deal with you, how, how are you going to have to be? I don't want to hear your marketing slogans. I don't want to hear your branding. You're judged at the end of the day by your behavior. So now, with your family, describe how you're going to have to be. Are you going to have to be honest? Are there degrees of honesty, like pregnancy? Can you be a little bit pregnant? No. You're honest or you're not. Decide that now. So when you've decided how you want your behavior has to be, now you're managing the farm. Now you're actually managing land. If you're in town, we would just have a generic description of land, clean air, clean water, nutritious food, etc. Because mm. everything you eat and waste goes back. But you're actually managing land. So now ignore how bad that land is now. It doesn't matter what condition it's in. What condition will it have to be in two or three hundred years from now for your family to still be living a life like that? Now, get beyond species and all this crap we talk about invasive species and competition in nature. and It's crap. Nature is synergistic. All right, so now describe your farm under four headings. How will the water cycle have to be? An effective water cycle or non-effective water cycle? New concept. We developed in the 1960s. Okay? It's available in the textbook, available in the handbooks, everything. Academics are only just beginning to talk about it over 50 years later. All right, so how will the effectiveness of the water have to be? Fully effective, most of the water soaking in, only leaving through plants, or flow through the soil, not leaving across the surface, leading to erosion and pollution and all the problems. How will the biological community dynamics be? Don't name species. Will it have to be highly complex and stable, or will it have to be a near monoculture or whatever? It'll have to be complex and stable. Whatever the biological community will have to be, all right, now, what about the mineral cycling? Are the minerals going to lock up in oxidation and chemical breakdown, or is it going to be biological cycling of nutrients? Just decide that. And obviously, if it's going to be sustained for centuries, it's got to be biological cycling of nutrients, not chemical. And then now you've finally got one more thing to describe. Everything you earn, every... Uh, dollar in the end comes through the amount of energy flow through photosynthesis. So are you going to have to have maximum energy flow on that land or some minimal? Because most land in America has got minimal energy flow on it. We're just wasting sunlight energy. You fly over America and just look at the amount of bare ground you look at on crop fields. That's telling you where most of the energy is going. It's not going into food or, or economy. And I'm just thinking like, so there's like the energy flow and the financial kind of flow one there is it's complicated because it seems like poor management oftentimes is rewarded financially um, somehow. Well, it always today's... is at the moment. It always yes. is at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's be... And now, so now come back to your individual farm and we're back there. And so let's say you are going to now manage holistically your life. Mm -hmm. So you decide how your life's going to be. Now you start making decisions in that context. 
but that's up to you. Are there some guidelines that can help you to filter ideas to see if you're dealing with a symptom or the cause of a problem, to see if you're getting the maximum marginal reaction on every dollar at any point of time towards your holistic context, not towards your immediate need, etc. But it's it's becomes the 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 reasons remain the same, but this becomes the holistic context for all your decision making. Now you go ahead with that. Now you you can manage your family that way. Now the moment you're managing your economy, you're in problems. So we cannot solve this problem at the individual farmer level because every farmer is operating in an economy that is controlled by politicians mm. and economists. And I read through the retiring World Bank um, uh, chairman, uh, his entire uh, biography, to just see how his thinking went. Um, I, I forget the guy's name at the moment, but there's a famous one a few years ago who retired. And I read his whole biography, and he only mentioned the word agriculture once. So no wonder that American agriculture is breaking the American economy. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's <laughs> that's that's true, and that's where it, it seems that I like what you said there, and just that, yeah, you, it's uh, unfortunate that we can't manage our finances as well as we hope because it's so impacted by the general economy, which we cannot manage. So that's where I guess it brings back in this conversation of the the scale and the whole of yeah. uh, the economies and governments and and things, which we also, <laughs> I don't know, which yeah, we have little control over, but. Well, no, we can we can talk about that. So, okay, let's accept that every farmer can only do the best they can, and many are doing it. I mean, I'm I'm proud of the farmers we've got in our whole hub movement of more than fifty hubs, I think it is now, yeah. on more than twenty countries, and they're doing great things, showing incredible results, and they're all doing the best they can in the economy they have. That's all they can do, but they cannot solve the problem because it has to be done at scale. Mm -hmm. So now you come to, how do you change policy? Because yeah. that's where we have to attack this problem. Yeah. <laughs> we can all do the best we can, all right, and achieve wonderful results. And now again, let's go back to science and logic. If we follow the science and we follow history, we find that as we all do that, and gradually, gradually, gradually change public opinion, finally, institutions change. That took 200 years in the Royal Navy to accept that lime juice would stop scurvy. All right? We've already been over 50 years. All right? So we know that if we follow science and history, we've got 100 to 200 years before institutions develop policy holistically. So what do you think the hope is of future generations? Yeah. Well, that's pretty demoralizing when you talk about a couple year or a couple hundred years to make a change and a transition. But all right. So that's what I'm spending my life on. So now in the Savory Institute, I'm supporting everything they're doing. I, I, I'm so proud to be part of this team mm -hmm. and what they're doing. It's it's just astounding. And yeah. the the number of organizations collaborating with them, brands collaborating them the EOV program, the land-to-market programs they have. It, it's astounding mm -hmm. what people getting together now are beginning to do as they all start to manage holistically in their organizations, whatever. 
So mm-hmm. it's wonderful what's going on. But my age now, 87, uh, and with health problems, I know I've only got a few more years. All right, so what I'm trying to do in my remaining years is write that memoir so it'll help people understand the early years of development and how this simple way to solve the problem could never have emerged from any institution, university, any one country in the world. It arose out of a unique set of circumstances in a dying empire, in a small colony, decolonizing in Africa. And I'm writing that early memoir to show people that, and I want to get that done as quick as I can. Now, the rest of my time, I will try to get somebody in the world to just approach, as I said in the COP26 talk, to just approach the prime minister, the leader, the president of any small country, because it's easier to start in a small country, any small country, okay? (laughs) And to just get that leader to say, okay, carry on as usual. Develop policy the way you do. Let's take agriculture because it's the foundation of everything. Without agriculture, you can't have a church, can't have a choir, can't have a university, can't have a government, can't have any business. No business in the world will ever be sustainable till agriculture is. All right, so let's start with agriculture. And let's say you were the prime minister of a country, small country. I would just say to you, please just carry on as you are because politicians cannot take any risk. You have to remain in power. So carry on as you are. Now, please arise above political level. Let's have you just act as a statesman and concurrently allow us to work with a small group of your people. You select them. Five well-educated people. That's all we need. And let's work with them to see what could be developed in an agricultural policy if we developed it in a national holistic context. That's all. That's all that's required. And I promise you, common sense and science will prevail. Now, how do we achieve that? One leader in the world prepared to take no risk and just stand out as a statesman and say, I'm going to do this and see what develops. I'm not committing to accepting it or anything else. Mm -hmm. Just let our people, our experts in our country, develop policy because we have the best experts in the world in our own country and let them develop policy this new way and just see what comes out of it. That's all I'm asking. And if we do that, and it's never been tried in the history of the world, we've got a real chance of scale, change at scale on happening quickly because it'll start a domino effect around the world for the simple reason that there's not a single politician or world leader who knows what to do, and the advice they're getting is nothing but confusion. It's interesting because I usually spend most of these podcasts, I would say, talking about the on-farm individual level decisions we can make to improve our businesses here today. And what we're discussing here today now is so much larger. And when you talk about scale, it's not even just referring to a scaled farm, like a thousand acres instead of a hundred or 10,000 instead of a thousand. It's scale is in the form of like all of a nation and and the, the systems and the, yeah, just the systems and groups within that. And it's, it's, it's stretching me beyond my uh, my expertise level for sure, but it's it and it's it's almost like a say when you talk about this large long 
long time it's it's it is somewhat demoralizing but it's also cool to see how much change has happened and you like you've talked about i think your 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 50 years or whatever it's been that you've been working towards this now and that these things are scaling through savory institute and through other organizations and people some of these principles and these guiding philosophies are starting to change but i guess the yeah the the hope would be with your what you're suggesting there is just that uh, it, ultimately it needs to get into government and that's you know individual level we can never really seem to maybe make large scale change well just uh, don't worry about your level of expertise there are no experts you're as much an expert as anybody in the world what country has got experts mm-hmm. in how to manage the complexity of human organizations economy and environment together that's what we will provide is the facilitation mm-hmm. skill to do that yeah and the government and their experts will produce the policy all we have and i have in my remaining years is the ability to facilitate that so that they develop the policy themselves mm-hmm. and they deal with that complexity and they will mm-hmm. and now why do i say they will with such confidence because we've done it so many times in training exercises and now we can't go beyond the real thing i i published in my third edition of the textbook a case in zimbabwe where i met with 35 lawmakers in two opposing parties they made republicans and democrats in america look like children playing in the playpen they were killing each other and my staff appealed to me when i met with them not to talk about land or agriculture because it would explode i said don't worry what i'm going to talk about and with them i got these two opposing political parties sitting on opposite sides of the room hostile atmosphere and i just said how do governments develop policy and we discussed that and they'd never known that that they all develop it to meet a problem or a perceived problem on expert advice and conflicting pressures and then political politicians step through the minefield and come up with a policy and it always has unintended consequences always all right so i said uh, there is a different way of doing it but we need a national holistic context now let me let's just do that let's not talk about it mm-hmm. and so i said how do you want your lives to be just the average person in our country let's just we are zimbabweans let's just talk about it how do we want our lives to be and it was all total agreement mm-hmm. how will our behavior have to be it was all total agreement what will our land have to look like 500 years from now for our population to be living like this we had total agreement mm-hmm. all we did was that and suddenly i had 35 zimbabweans working together and within the end of the workshop we had the ideal agricultural policy the world dreams of and every bit of knowledge was available in the room hmm. it is not a lack of knowledge the world's overflowing with experts it's how we develop the policy and that's what we discovered in 83 and cannot get through because of wicked problems. Yeah, that seems like that is ultimately the issue and stuff. I mean, I think of even here in the United States, I think there's so many in in policy and I'm again, <laughs> no political expert, but that's okay. But, you know, there's I I think there's there are ultimately a lot of people who agree on both sides of the aisle, but they it, the practices is where this all breaks down. And that's the same in agriculture too that we have, you know, I think farmers all 
probably have similar agreements in that we want to manage our land well, we want to be profitable, and we want to enjoy our life. We all have different viewpoints in, in which practices get us to that. And uh, yeah, we, we, we don't change the management. We just yeah. change the practices. Yeah, That's, yes. that's the point yeah. I'm making. And yeah. once you change the management, the best practices float to the top. You don't have to promote them. Mm-hmm. I said this in a London talk seven or eight years ago. I said, you know, you've got uh, people promoting farmer agriculture, farmer-based biologically. You've got people promoting chemical technology-based agriculture. The one group is tiny. It's insignificant amongst 9 billion people or whatever we're approaching. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, so who's winning? Goliath is winning, not David. Mm-hmm. Now, you can argue that, and people will argue that for the next 100 years. And if this proportion who want agriculture based on science, all right, uh, increases by double, treble, by 10, 15, 20 years from now, which would be phenomenal, they'll still represent under 5% of the population. So how do you short-circuit that? I say, don't start arguing about practices. Stop it. Let's just talk about management because everybody in the world will agree. What scientist in the world, what farmer in the world will promote reductionist management once they know understand what that means? Mm-hmm. Not a single scientist in the world will promote that or support it. So the moment we start talking about what's the alternative, how to manage holistically, all right, the whole world can support that. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to anybody you talk to about and do you run into situations, I guess, with people where one of the three holes or one of those three pieces of holistic management seems to be more advantaged than another, or maybe one is advantaged while another is disadvantaged? And how do those decisions get made then? I don't understand that question. Well, I guess, for example, and this is more on the individual level, I guess on our farm here, we're in Southeast Minnesota, where land values are very high and, and largely financial makes sense, maybe to raise row crops uh you know and so that would uh, be obviously an advantage to the financial piece of that holistic management and grazing which we're trying to do and we're finding ways to do is not as advantageous financially or for some without the proper markets maybe even a complete loss of income but it definitely meets more of the um, ecological and natural systems and for the individual who cares about that it meets their social and life goals but it doesn't meet the financial goals how do you weigh decisions and maybe that's not what we should be focusing on but when no. when they you have conflicting kind of results <laughs> no, 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 that's perfectly all right you can only do the best you can and there are many good farmers around america and the world who are doing that people in australia here they're well-known names you read them over and over who are doing polycropping and integrating livestock with the cropping and changing their practices to more biologically based, scientifically based practices. And they're operating to the best they can in the economic environment they're doing. And you've got some wonderful examples of people who've published books on that and just support them, do do the same thing. But I'm just telling you that as you do the same thing, uh, and it's all you can do and you should do, all right? I'm just saying to you as an old man in the departure lounge, that know that that until that leads to a change at scale, all right, 
will take over 100 years. So I'm suggesting an untried, totally risk-free suggestion. No, I love that. It would be (laughs) be pretty incredible. And and I think it would be interesting just to see how many people uh, realize that they have similarities when they start to put together a holistic context and discuss things like what do we want things to look like. Let me give you an example of that. Years ago, when I was training the 2000 government people, the Fish and Wildlife Service asked me to come up to Nebraska, I think it was, the Creek Refuge, to help them manage holistically. And I said, fine, get the farmers, the townspeople, uh, the bureaucrats, get them together, and I'll come up and meet with you. And they set a date for the meeting, and they asked me for an agenda, and it was the day before cell phones and all these things, and I actually sent them a blank sheet of paper in the post. And they rang and said, there's nothing on this. I said, fine, that's the agenda. It's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's not about anything except those people. So all I want to do is meet with them. And when I got there, and we went to the farmer's hall, near the one town, there were hostile atmosphere. People were around pickups and groups, all men, no women, no children. And I said to the bureaucrats I was with, what's going on here? Aren't there any women and children in this community? And they said, no, there's... This is after the Oklahoma bombing. You remember Timothy McVeigh? And in the next six months, there'd been God knows how many attacks on government buildings. They said people have come for to conflict. This is going to be a conflict. And so anyway, I went into the hall with this group of 40, 50 men, whatever it was, and I started to talk to them about managing holistically and uh, how we could develop a holistic context right there and start guiding us on it. And I got ridiculed and shouted down. They told me to, in very coarse language, to bugger off back to Africa, that I didn't know their community. They said, it's impossible to have agreement in this community. And so I just said, time out, gentlemen. I accept that. Let's cancel this meeting. And they applauded. And I said, one more thing. And they said, what's that? I said, why don't you agree to just work with me for one hour? And prove me I'm wrong, and then I'll go. So they agreed to work for one hour. And all I did was I gave everybody a piece of paper, and I said, you've got 10 minutes. Be totally selfish. Think only of yourself, nobody else. And I want you to write on this piece of paper what you'd like to see in this community if you could come back 100 years from now. By the look of you, you will all be dead within 20 years, because they were all old age. Okay, so they agreed to that, totally selfishly, write what they'd like to see 100 years from now. That's all I asked. And when he collected those pieces of paper 10 minutes later, they were identical. You couldn't tell who was a townsperson, who was a farmer, who was a rancher, who was a bureaucrat. They all wanted the same thing. The whole atmosphere changed within the an hour. We had the rudiments of a holistic context. People left the meeting, someone putting an arm on another guy's shoulders, I noticed. Total change. Now that all ground to a halt because one US US Fish and Wildlife Service official in Denver was the overall in charge and he banned all further participation. It's no mystery to it. It's, it's, when you manage holistically, it is unbelievably unifying. So anytime you see conflict between people, you know they're not managing holistically. You know it right there. No, that's pretty incredible. Um, just to... Uh... 
in both ways incredibly sad that certain people would want to stop that kind of uh, that management or that sort of that progress, but also well, think, incredible. To think of Catholic Church. I mean, it's just yeah. how nobody's being bad. I'm stressing that. Nobody is guilty. Who's guilty for not flying before the Wright brothers did? We have to hold somebody accountable. Somebody has to be guilty. Surely. No, we don't. Right? Up until 1983, we didn't know what was causing the problem. Now we do. Mm -hmm. And wicked problems is part of it, so we just need to deal with that. Mm. Well, I, I like that too, because I think there's been an issue. It's something that frustrates me anyway, at least in, in my particular local southeast Minnesota community, is that I think there's, you know, specifically on the topic of soil health, I think there's kind of a negative connotation with it because in history and in the past, certain groups and people have made out certain farms to be the enemy and the problem. And you're saying that there isn't one, you know, problem. Nobody is the problem. We are all doing our best with what we know and, and stuff, and we just need to change at scale. And that's a challenge. But yeah. You know, what I'm saying, if I explain it to a 10-year-old child, uh, or anybody, a layman, fisherman, it doesn't matter. They just say, but, but this is common sense. Mm -hmm. When I put those 2,000 people through training over the two years, the two commonest comments from everybody was first, oh my God, this is just common sense. Mm -hmm. The second comment was, oh my God, we've cut right across all disciplines, expertise. It's like doing four degrees in a week. Those were the two commonest <laughs> comments I got. Lay, lay people, ordinary people, understand this quickly. If mm -hmm. you're an expert in a particular field, you're trained as an expert in that field of production in some way or other. Mm -hmm. There are no people trained to facilitate the complexity that we're managing. We're, yeah. we're trying to do that in the Slavery Institute. Mm -hmm. So if we get one government to move, and one leader to be a statesman and move, as I'm suggesting, one of the things we'll immediately do is, in that session, start training facilitators on the job. I guess I'm curious where, what I have, what I, what have I not asked? What are some thoughts that you have that I, you know, that, that I'm not even, I, I don't even know what to ask, I guess, necessarily. What are things that are, yeah, just things that should be discussed with the audience there? Listeners. You know, I, I think you. I'm, I'm just terribly grateful that you've been patient with me and let us cover what we have. I think, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm now talking with decades of struggle with this problem to try to learn why it was under our professional management we have always damaged the environment, always. And I, I set out to discover that if I could, with the help of thousands of scientists, farmers, pastoralists, we discovered what was the problem in 83. And thanks for hearing me out. Now, all I can do in my remaining years is to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing and all the people in the regenerative agriculture movement are doing. But a few of you support what I'm suggesting because it'll save millions of lives. Mm, yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of something I'm I'm curious on. You you kind of mentioned, you know, you're proud of what the Savory Institute has done, but I'm curious if you've had thoughts as you write your your 
biography or your memoir here and stuff, have you reflected on the impact that you've already made? And, and I know you look and probably see frustration in a way that, you know, you wish it had moved faster, but you've, you're probably one of the most global, you know, most impactful people across the world that, you know, especially for sure that I've talked to anyway, but you, you've had quite the impact and that's got to be pretty incredible. Well, um, yeah, this, you hear the frustration in my voice because it's just I, I want so desperately to help uh, people, which I've tried to do all my life. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I don't know what more to say without repeating, yeah. but just to say, encourage people to keep going as they, they're doing, mm -hmm. um, but to understand that it will take a century or more and uh, and to urge a few people to support with absolute determination what I'm suggesting, which is this totally risk-free approach for the leader of some small country mm -hmm. to start a domino effect around the world. Yeah. I believe yeah, I, it will. I, and I think it's easy probably to think that, you know, our impact is so small that we won't have the ability, especially when you talk about this as a century, but it takes people, it takes someone like you starting this movement, it, it, you know, the domino effect gets bigger and bigger and, and that so someday in 100 years, 200 years, this this can be largely accepted and changed. And so if people are listening to this, I guess, thinking that there's nothing that they're doing, I guess, when they make changes in their own operations or they just start to push for some of these these philosophies and principles that they're not having an impact, but it's all part of that larger long-term change that we, we need everybody, I guess, to. I just find I've found throughout all my struggles that even when people's families are at risk, their lives are at risk, it's almost impossible to get people to focus on what matters. Uh, everybody gets into confusion and discussion and once their voice heard, and I've experienced this over and over, and all it needs is, is, is literally just focus. So if you look at many people today are saying we need to mimic nature, 50, 60 years ago, there were a few of us around the world saying that in effect. Now there are millions saying it. Now, if you look at nature, and we're managing three things, you remember, all right? In nature, diversity leads to stability and productivity. Anything that's breaking down diversity tends to lead the other way. I've written about that in my textbook. Many people know that today. Now, if you look at the economy that's uh, being managed, not a single economist in the world believes a mono-economy is the way to go. Every economist knows that diversity is the strength of economies. All right, so these two things we're managing Diversity is the principle. Now you come to human institutions and diversity of views, and what do you find? You find the opposite. You find total chaos, as you'll see at COP27. I promise you that. Hmm. Now, why is diversity leading to total confusion in human institutions? You see, that's what we solve the moment we develop policy holistically. Hmm. And diversity of opinion suddenly becomes powerful, absolutely essential, but it doesn't lead to argument and fights because we have a common holistic context. But as long as you have your needs, your desires, your problems to solve, and I have my needs, my desires, and my problems to solve, 
we will fight. Mm -hmm. We will go to war. We will kill each other. Hmm. I, uh, I'm curious, I guess, uh, if there's, well, hmm, not even sure, I guess the, the idea of diversity there, it's, it's interesting. I'm just kind of working through in my head. It just, you know, how, uh, it, it, it people like to reduce it to simplicity because they don't yeah everybody has their own perspective on what to do not on again yeah you're focusing on the action and when you look at the action and you bring a bunch of minds together everybody's going to have a different perspective on what to do to get to a goal and that's just what you're saying i guess is a shift from focusing on action and, and practices to focus on a whole and and goals that you know long-term okay. large-scale goals that when you get groups and diversity together, there really isn't disagreement. And that, yeah. So uh, just, just, just stop right there and go simpler. You're, you're complicating it. Mm. Go simpler. Let's say you, you and I are managing a uh, normal way. You come up with a way of doing something. I come up with a way we argue, we fight, we go with the one we think is best, and we end up in adaptive management. It's the oldest management known in the history of the world. If you and I are managing holistically together, all right, with a group of people, and we've all agreed on a holistic context, now when you come up with an idea, we never ever say that's a bad idea. If I tell you it's a bad idea, what's your reaction? It's okay. to cross your arms and say to hell with you yeah. and defend. Okay, mm -hmm. so you never ever say an idea is a bad idea. You let the person discover it for themselves. You say that's a good idea. And somebody else comes up with an idea. That's a good idea. Let's filter these ideas and see which are in line with our holistic context. When you do that, if your idea was not the appropriate idea, it shows up and you learn it and you're not told you're wrong. Because our egos are the biggest vested interest in the world, bigger than financial or any other vested interest. Now, that's the beauty of managing holistically, is you can hear everybody, listen to them, and then filter the ideas. And if you come up with two ideas that both pass the filtering in the same, you can now discuss and say, okay, why don't we try one of these, okay, and assume we're wrong? Because we, in managing holistically, we always assume we're wrong, not assume we're right. So now let's assume we're wrong. Where would we detect that earliest so that we don't make a big mistake? Hmm. And then if that idea that we chose, we pick up very early, is leading the wrong way, we go back to the other idea. There's, there's no fight. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, everything's a fight to the death and professional egos. and Oh, God, it's mm -hmm. we're just committing suicide. And well, you've got me excited thinking about even just, yeah, well, in two pieces, I'm thinking about how we can implement this better in our farm, uh, in our businesses, in our lives. And then also just, you know, the the hope and excitement of what this could mean for our countries and our worlds if we if we implemented this at scale. Um, but, you know, that'll, well, that will happen in time. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I, I want to give you the opportunity here as we kind of wrap up to plug anything that you might want to you know talk about you've mentioned your the savory institute you, you you've got some books anything that you you would like to just to share with with the listeners well i i just want to say uh you know thank you again for for listening to me and uh one of the things that 
when the National Geographic PBS did their documentary uh, on uh, and came to Zimbabwe, uh, they did the documentary on on the land issues, uh, the savannas of the world, etc. When I was driving Sanjon, the uh, narrator of that uh, program, back to the airport, he asked me what I wanted my legacy to be, and I was horrified. It's not about me. It's not about my goddamn legacy. It's not about my ego. It's about trying to save humanity. And so that just horrified me. And what you're hearing from me is, is not just coming from me. It's coming from thousands of people that I've worked with. I was just the focal point determined to solve the problem and not get diverted onto side issues. That's all I was. I was the, the disciplinarian who said, we will solve this problem. But the ideas, everything, I stood on the shoulders of other people. Scientists, people have all preceded me, far more knowledgeable than I am, far wiser than I am. Uh, uh, it's not about that. So it's, I just want to thank everybody who's contributed to this. Now let's move forward. Like the Wright brothers learned how to fly, and within 70 years we were on the moon. We're not getting moving. That's up to you younger guys. You either get moving or you sit on your backsides. <laughs> no, that's that's the truth. <laughs> and that's the kind of, uh, yeah, the kind of push and the call we need. So I appreciate that. I guess if people want to learn more, um, you know, it, this is obviously, you know, I've got your book here. I've listened to the audio book. I think it's 17 hours long or something. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot more that we can't get into here in the conversation that we've had. So I guess oh, if yeah. people want to learn more, they want to dig into this further, where would you direct them? Just go to the Savory Institute website. Yeah. It's, uh, we, they, they're doing a ever better and better job on trying to get self-help, every way of learning, connect people with other organizations, all the people that are collaborating today, uh, the programs I mentioned earlier. Everything's available at the site. Uh, just work your way through it, you know. Sure. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you about. and for the patient people who listen. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> the Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.